Good morning. If we can find our seats, we'll get started this morning. Exodus chapter 13, we're going to be starting in verse 11. As you're turning there, just uh, again, a, a quick announcement. We're having the Ask the Pastors again at 2 o'clock. I hope you made each other feel welcome this morning. That's great. I felt welcome, so. Uh, again, we're going to have Ask the Pastors at 2 o'clock. We changed the name from Coffee with the Pastors to Ask the Pastors because we, we really want um, anyone that has been a part of the church or is new to the church, anyone that wants to come and either has a question, you can write questions in now throughout the week on the website. I'm not sure how to do that. Ask Daniel. He knows how. You don't know how? Okay. Yeah, he does. Okay. If he doesn't know how, he'll figure it out. Um, and you can ask questions throughout the week. Um, but more than anything, it's a chance for you just to get to know who the elders are. And uh, that's why we changed the name um, so it doesn't feel like it's just new people that, that are uh, welcome to come. Uh, also, the social justice and the gospel class will start up again tonight at 6. Love to see you guys there. If you would, read along with me. Exodus chapter 13, starting in verse 11. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers... And shall give it to you. You shall set apart to the Lord all the first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of a man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt and from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to listen to or to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be a, as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, Father. God, it's amazing that we can call you Father. That you redeemed us, that you saved us, that you adopted us into your family cost of your son, we are called sons. We are a part of your family. You are our father, Lord. God, I pray that that concept of family is just so important to us, Lord, as a church. That we, as parents, that, that we as fathers would understand the, the weightiness of that role the task that you have given us to pass down the faith to the next generation. God, be with us this morning as we look through this text, as we look through Exodus 12 and 13 and see the role, the responsibility you've given to parents, Lord. To proclaim truth, to teach about salvation, to share the gospel with the next generation, Lord. I pray that Country Oaks is known as a church that highly esteems the family, Lord. 
that understands the task, that makes sacrifice, Lord, to share your word with those that are under us, Lord, those that are coming up. Be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. We're continuing the sermon series that we've been going through in chapters 12 and 13, looking at these three rituals that are found within these two chapters, the the Passover feast, the feast of unleavened bread, and the consecration of the firstborn. There's a reason we've spent so much time, about two months now, on these three rituals. It's because these three rituals dominate the text of chapters 12 and 13. In fact, there's 34 verses dedicated to these rituals. It's clear that God wanted the Israelites to remember the Passover. As we've walked through these two chapters and and looked at these three different rituals, I've said that there's three main themes uh, I've mentioned a couple different times that we see over and over again in these two chapters. The first theme is this, this idea of remembering that we're called, or the Israelites were called, to remember the truths found in the Exodus. This idea of remembering. The second theme that we see in these two chapters over and over again is that the truths of the Exodus are to be passed down from generation to generation. And a third theme that we've seen over and over again is that the truths of the Exodus are to be passed down even in the Promised Land. And when the Israelites enter the Promised Land, they are to continue to remember the Exodus and where they came from. These are three different themes that we see repeated over and over again. And so today, I really wanted to end this sermon series by looking at these three themes. And so there will be like the three points of the sermon this morning. So the first theme, again, is this idea of remembering. Remembering the great truth learned from the Exodus and the Passover. It's really amazing when you think about it, the theology that's taught in the historical Exodus, that's found in the historical Exodus, especially the theology surrounding salvation. Philip Ryken writes, to study Exodus is to learn the theology of salvation. I mean, just think about some of the lessons that are learned in the book of Exodus and and, and in these couple chapters even that we've been going over. Exodus teaches us about the depravity of man. We see it clearly in the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, him suppressing the truth over and over again. We see the depravity in the people of Egypt who had a respect for Moses and Yahweh, even had a healthy fear, but didn't follow God out of Egypt. In fact, they just wanted Israel out so that they could go back to normal life. We even see the depravity man in the Israelites. We see it in Moses arguing with God in the first beginning parts of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3 through 7, four chapters of Moses arguing with God. We see it in the Israelites' leaders not believing God, not listening to God, and especially at Exodus chapter 6. But even more clearly than all of that, we see it in the Passover. Israel needed a substitute. Their need for the blood of the Lamb to atone for their sins is a clear indication of their depravity. The Exodus teaches us about sin and judgment. Exodus 4, verse 22 says this, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. 
as we've seen, this happens after nine warnings. God brought about a final judgment, death. Ezekiel 18.22 says, The soul who sins shall die. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The Exodus teaches us about election. Exodus 11 verse 6 says this, There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has ever been nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, neither man nor beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And why does God make a distinction? It's not because Israel was so great. Purely out of his love, because Israel is God's chosen people. The Exodus teaches us about faith. Think about the Passover, the rationale behind it. You pick out your best lamb, an unblemished lamb. You would keep that lamb within the household for four days. You would slaughter that lamb in front of the family. You would eat it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. You would burn all the leftovers, and you would do this in anticipating freedom. They were to eat it with their belt fastened and sandals on their feet and their staff in their hand. They were to eat it in haste. Eat it, in other words, in faith that freedom was coming. Hebrews eleven twenty eight says, By faith he, this is Moses, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the, that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. That's Israel. They did this in faith. The Exodus teaches us about substitutionary atonement. I mean, just think about it. If you wanted to explain substitutionary atonement, Exodus 12 is such a great place, if not the best place in all of Scripture. The Passover lamb took the place of the firstborn as a substitute. And the death of that lamb atoned for the sins of Israel. And it's just so clear. Exodus teaches us about redemption. We spent all last week talking about this. God paid the price to save Israel, to redeem Israel from slavery. God bought Israel out of slavery. The Exodus teaches us about sanctification. We saw that in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that God wanted Israel to leave all the leaven of Egypt behind. All the the influence of Egypt's pagan ways, all the influence and, and practices of the Egyptian cult. God wanted the Israelites to leave it all behind to be holy to the Lord. Exodus teaches us about the communion of the saints. Right? Simply, Exodus chapter 12, verse 47 says, All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. The Passover feast was a shared festival because it was a shared salvation. Israel was saved. Remember the timing, the 10th day you would pick out a lamb, the 14th day you would kill that lamb. At twilight, at the same exact moment, all the lambs were killed at the same exact time. It was a shared event, remembering the, reminding the Israelites that they're part of a community. It wasn't necessarily just a personal relationship. It was a personal relationship that placed you within a community, just like your personal relationship places you within the church. Finally, the Exodus teaches the importance of remembering, remembering our great salvation. 
Exodus 13, 3 says this, And Moses said to the people, Remember this day. It's a command by God. They are to remember this day, the day of the Passover, the day of salvation. They are to remember their salvation from Egypt. Deuteronomy 5.15 says, You shall remember. That's a command. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. The Lord wanted Israel to remember. To remember the Passover. To remember the power of God. Tim, awesome displays of power. To remember the harsh slavery and what it took to save them. To remember the Passover lamb who atoned for their sins and the blood that was painted on the doorposts. And God knew man's tendency to forget. And he wanted them to remember, so he gave them three rituals to remind them. To remind them of their great salvation. He gave him these three rituals that we've been going over. But more than that, and this is important, right? he gave these three rituals to teach the Israelites about their salvation. To teach them theology. To teach them soteriology, which is really the study of salvation. The, the great doctrines that surround salvation. Just think about what these three rituals taught the Israelites. They taught them about the depravity of man, sin and judgment, election, faith, substitutionary atonement, redemption, sanctification, the communion of the saints. He even taught the Israelites about the importance of remembering these doctrines and the importance of teaching them to the next generation. Which brings us to our next theme, and this is where I wanted to spend most of our time this morning. The first theme is remembering. Remembering these great truths of the Exodus, the theology that we find in, in the Exodus. Second theme that we see over and over again in chapters 12 and 13 is that these truths of the Exodus are to be passed down from generation to generation. These three rituals were to help teach the next generation. Again, look at Exodus 12, verse 14. Exodus 12, verse 14. It says this. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. This remembrance should be passed down from generation to generation, in other words. Now look at verse 17. It says this, "And, And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statue forever. These truths, Israel's salvation, in other words, should be passed down from generation to generation to generation. We think about the festivals, and we've spent enough time on it now. I think we all have kind of our minds wrapped around how these festivals happen. Where did they take place? In the household. Not at the temple. Look at Exodus 12, verse 3. It says this, verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. On the tenth day, the father of the household, in other words, would go out and pick an unblemished lamb, 
that lamb would live within that household for four days with the family. And then on the 14th day, the father, not the priest, super important, the father would slaughter the lamb in front of the household, which taught the depravity of man, which taught what the penalty of sin was, which showed the family the sins of the household needed to be atoned for. Then the Passover meal was eaten by the family. They would eat bitter herbs. And the father would teach about the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. They would eat unleavened bread. And the father would teach about how badly the Israelites wanted out and how they left in haste, leaving all the leaven of Egypt behind. Again, this wasn't done in the temple. It was the parents' responsibility to teach their children about salvation, to teach their children the gospel. Look at Exodus 12, verse 25. It says this, verse 25. And when you come to the land, it's the promised land, when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? When your children undoubtedly ask, why are we slaughtering this lamb and eating it with bitter herbs and unleavened bread? You shall say, it's not the priest, not Moses, not Aaron, not Joshua, not some youth pastor from the church. The parents fact, specifically the father. Fathers were called to teach their children. To teach their children about justification, about salvation, about substitutionary atonement, about sanctification. Again, look at verse 27. It says this, you shall say, right, this is the father speaking, It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. As the father speaking, the Passover meal, the Passover feast, within the household, the father explaining the meaning to his children. It really was family worship. And this is true for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, too. Look at... Exodus chapter 13, verse 7 now. Verse 7 says this. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. We, we know now that the feast, the Passover feast started the feast of unleavened bread. So you'd have the Passover feast for seven days after that. You wouldn't eat any leaven. And where was this happening? Where do you eat? In the household. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. And I think this is important. It's within households within a community. Households within Israel. Again, within the households, a family would search the whole house for leaven, and they would get rid of it. And the children, undoubtedly, again, would ask, why? Why are we doing this? 
verse 8. You shall tell your son on that day is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, parents were teaching their kids about sanctification. That we are to get rid of all the leaven of sin and worldliness out of our lives. Right? To, get, to get it out. Get this visual with the kids as they're getting rid of leaven of, of what they're to do in their own lives. This was true with the ritual of the consecration of the firstborn, too. Look at Exodus chapter 13, verse 11 now. It says this in verse 11. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. In other words, it's redemption or death. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. Now look at verse 14. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him. Again, we see a father talking to his son. As his son sees the father taking the firstborn of animals and, and sacrificing them or redeeming a donkey. The son's going to ask at some point, why do you do this? And the father's going to explain, and then he's going to explain, this is what I did for you when you were born. Look, look, this is the father speaking, verse 14. It says, you shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out from Egypt, of Egypt, from the house of slavery. He's explaining redemption. That's redemption. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, that's the depravity of man's heart. The Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. That's God's wrath and judgment the father is explaining to his son. Therefore, again, this is the father speaking to his son. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, animals. All the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It's redemption. He's telling his son, that's what I did for you. In other words, the father is teaching the son about salvation. Soteriology. Right? The study of salvation. He's teaching him the gospel. All these festivals and rituals were done as a family. They were done as a family. They were opportunities for parents to teach their children, to teach, to pass down truths about salvation to the next generation. It's one of the main reasons God commands these rituals. It's very clear in these two chapters. It's to help parents teach their children. Look at Exodus 12, verse 26. It says this, And when your children say to you, What do you mean by this service? God, through demanding or commanding this, this ritual, has set up for children to ask, what does this mean? Can we see this in 13, verse 14? And when time to come, your sons ask you, what does this mean? Opportunities to teach. Listen, it's the parent's responsibility. It's the parent's responsibility in both the Old Testament and the New Testament 
parents' responsibility to teach the next generation about salvation, to be shepherds at home. By the way, this is one of the main reasons why we encourage children to be in the worship service. We want them to ask why. It's not the only reason, but it's one of the main reasons. We want them to see you worshiping. I want my kids to see you worshiping and ask me, why are they doing that? Why do people have their hands up when they worship? We want them to see baptisms and communion and ask the question, what do you mean by this service? What does this mean? I mean, just think about the teaching opportunity. That's the purpose of them, to remind us, to to teach theology to us. We want children to ask why. We want them to see baby dedications and ask you why. why. Why are they doing that? Ask, did you do that with me when I was a baby? We want them to sit through an hour-long sermon and ask, why would anyone do that? Have the opportunity to tell them it's important that we hear God's word, that this is important. You know, and don't get me wrong, I want my kids to love to come to church. I do. I want them to see this place as a place that they get excited for each week. But I also want this place to be a place where they learn. Again, we want them to be a part of the worship service. This is why Mike Owens gets up here almost every Sunday and says they're invited. And it's not, listen, we have amazing teachers. In fact, I'm so thankful for it. I walk through the hallway and see who's teaching my kids, and I'm just like, this is amazing. We have men teaching truths to, to my children, and I love that. But I also want my kids in here for worship service because I want them to ask why. I want them to ask me why. Again, the, the lessons that happen first service, I, I hope it lines up with what they're getting taught at home. But I want them to ask why. Again, just think about communion and baptism. Those, those are our rituals. Those are, those are ordinances meant to teach us about our salvation. Those are just great opportunities to teach soteriology, to teach the depravity of man that it took the death of Jesus to save us. That's why blood in his body. Teach about substitutionary atonement. That's what we deserve. Son, daughter, that's what you deserve because of your sins. Teach about regeneration. A life that that is buried in Christ and baptism walks. It's new. It's a new creation. You know, personally, as a family, me and Sarah, we don't let our children partake in communion yet. We do that because we want to make sure that they understand salvation, that they've truly put their faith in Christ, that they've been baptized, and they haven't yet. But I want them in here for communion because I want them to ask why. And I want them to ask, why, why don't we take it? Why are we not allowed to have some? 
perfect opportunities to share the gospel with them. But listen, teaching shouldn't only happen on Sundays. I want you to see, look, look what Exodus 13 verse 8 says. Exodus 13 verse 8. says this, you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. What is this? This is a father explaining the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread to to his son, which only happened once a year. This this ritual only happened once a year, but look at verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. It's interesting. There's something very similar in verse 16. Look at verse 14. Let me just start there. It says this in verse 14. Again, Exodus 13, verse 14. And and when in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? consecration of the firstborn. What does this mean? Why do we do this? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons, I redeem. In verse 16, it shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. Again, we see this as a mark on your hand, frontlets before your eyes. Verse 9 says, as a memorial between your eyes, the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. These are all metaphors all metaphors for how we should remember these truths within the Exodus. As if these truths were written on the back of our hands, always reminding us as we look down. As if these truths were were right in front of your face, right between your eyes. You're just not going to forget that. Always there. In other words, these truths of salvation is taught and these rituals should always be on our minds. Not just on festivals, not just on Sabbaths, and for us, not just on Sundays. But always. As if these theologies, these, this truth, were written again on the back of our hands or hanging in front of our eyes, always, always, always on our minds. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8. And if you, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open this up because I want you to see. We see these same metaphors in Deuteronomy. And I think there's a connection between Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Exodus 12 and 13 that I want to make. But, but turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8 real quick. In verse 8, and it says this You shall bind them. Bind them. This is the, the law of God, God's words. 
you shall bind them as, as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gate. In other words, just like Exodus 12 and 13, your thinking, your, your talking, your household, your whole life should be saturated with the truth found in God's word. Shall bind them as a, a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now look at Deuteronomy chapter six, verse one, because I want you to see the context of these two verses. Again, I, I think there's a correlation, there's a connection between Deuteronomy six and the rituals found in, in Exodus twelve and thirteen. So verse one says this. Deuteronomy 6, verse 1, it says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. In other words, in the promised land, I want you to keep these, um, these laws. That you may fear the Lord your God, and listen to this, you, you and your son and your son's son. How many generations is that? Three. Let me just stop and point out If you're not a parent This morning but you're a grandparent You still have an important role to play In fact If you're not a parent and you're a grandparent And your kids And their kids Because of your kids don't talk to you for some reason I don't know why You still have a role to play because prayer is powerful. And you can pray for them diligently. This is not just a sermon to parents, but grandparents too. Listen, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statues and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Again, this is the promised land. Then we get to verse 4. Verse 4 is called the Shema. For an Israelite, it's probably the most important verse in all of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. It's kind of like the John 3.16 for the church. Most of us know John 3.16. Most of us have it memorized. The Shema was memorized by, by every young Israelite. It was called the Shema because that word Shema is the Hebrew word for hear. And it's the first word in, in chapter 4. Look at chapter, or I mean verse 4. Look at verse 4. It says this, hear, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's a great monotheistic statement. Monotheism is just one monotheos, God monotheistic statement. The Lord is one. There's only one God. I mean, this truth is what separated Israel from all the pagan nations. Every other nation that was around were all polytheistic, meaning they believed in many gods, poly, many, theos, gods. One of the identity marks of, of Israel is that they worship the one true God. This verse is extremely important, therefore. Look at verse 4 again. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Then look at verse 5. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. What is uh, verse 5? According to Jesus. The greatest commandment in all of Scripture. Just think about that. Think about what's in these two verses. You have verse 4, right? The Shema, the Shema statement. And within even the Shema statement, you have the greatest commandment, according to Jesus, in all of Scripture. Well, what comes right after that? Look at verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You know, there's a connection that we see clearly in Deuteronomy 6, and I believe you see it throughout Scripture. There's a connection between loving God with all your heart and teaching your children about this God that you love. In fact, no matter what, you're going to teach your children what you love, right? Let me just give you an example. My two kids, my two oldest, are Laker fans. It's not because they came to that conclusion. It just I'm sorry if I offended you by that. It's, it's the way I grew up, so it just gets passed down generation to generation. But think about that. They would. If you asked them, what's your favorite team? They'd say Lakers influence that I have on them. What I love, they love. I think the opposite of this is true, too. Think about this. If you are not teaching your children about this great God, do you truly love them? Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, lie down, and when you rise. When is that? 